Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, you're very welcome along to this week's episode of the Group Chat Podcast. I'm news correspondent Zara King. I'm joined in studio by political correspondent Gavin Riley. Hello, Zara. How are you? And live from the United States, news correspondent Richard Chambers. <laughs> Here we are. Live and direct. Look at that for a backdrop. On that it's lighting. The walk one from the other day, isn't it? The lighting is phenomenal. You're looking oh, amazing. Pristine. Yeah, you're looking amazing. This is an early morning glow here is what this is. <laughs> this is the Golden Hours brought to you live by our specialist lighting cameraman, uh, Supremo, Owen Kelly. Uh, kudos to him for all of his work. Come here, how are you getting on? Are you wrecked? <laughs> ah, yeah. Like, it's tiring business. Like, I'm, I am I don't want to be in a car ever again. Okay. That's <laughs> what I would say. We've driven about 4,000 kilometres uh, from the southern tip of Florida, uh, right up here to the nation's capital in Washington, D.C., uh, profiling the crazy wave of uh, ultranationalism, uh, <laughs> conspiracy theories, and all sorts of mad stuff which has been happening in American politics. And uh, frankly, quite tired at this point, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, on a, a serious note, because we're not going to do too much into the, the uh, election results because there's been kind of covered to death on our own bulletins and elsewhere as well. But the journey that you've literally been on, and I, I mean journey in multiple senses of the word, has been really has been Spiritual, really yes. has been, it's, like, it's like the Camino basically but like it, it's been really eye-opening and it, in some ways actually really very unsettling because it, it would have been almost unsettling enough had there been huge Republican gains and if that element of the country was now in charge but it, it's almost even more worrying that there's now going to be this massive minority who feel kind of disenfranchised because they probably feel like this election's been rigged just like the last one Ah, yeah, definitely. Like, that, there are people here who are going to be big mad about this. Like, 34% of Americans believe 2020 was robbed uh, and therefore, you know, Donald Trump should be president still. And they believe that in their hearts. They, you cannot shake that out of them. We'll talk a little bit about this a little bit later on. But when that is such a strong part of the, of the entire electorate in America, that they believe that, you know, up is down and left is right and black is white and all that sort of stuff, how exactly do you ever get through to them? Uh, they're going to believe that. They believe that Trump was, some of them do, at least a, an actually increasing proportion believe that Donald Trump was sent to them by God uh, and that he is basically ordained to become uh, their leader and that they will defend him with their lives if they have to. And that is worrying when you have that level of fanaticism around any candidate, whether you believe in Donald Trump or not, if you're a fan of his or not. But that really, really is deeply ingrained. And that's something we definitely found over the last while. Uh, and that is strange because it feels quite religious. It doesn't feel like does. we're, mm. you know, we're talking about politics. We're talking about uh, really, you know, people and um, effectively, you know, this is a worship thing. You like, we're, we'll talk, we'll get into the Trump rally we attended in Pennsylvania shortly. But like, wherever we've gone, there is such a feeling amongst Republican supporters that this is their identity. Their identity is Donald Trump. They will wear his face on their shirts. They will, you know, wear his hat going down to the supermarket to pick up some eggs and beer. 
Um, like why where else would you get that in, in any sort of sense that you know just wearing the emblem of this guy this one political leader who is not the president uh, who lost in 2020 who lost in the midterms in 2018 they're so caught up in that that they believe he can do no wrong everything he says is true and that is really hard to break through I was going to say and for you even having those conversations Richard is it difficult to kind of you know even in your line of questioning is it difficult to get through those conversations because of that religious belief that you know you know that what they're saying back sort of makes no sense but you have to be on a level with these people and you have to show them respect obviously in the in the course of that conversation but can that be quite challenging yeah <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, like, I, I, I went into this under no illusions because I wanted to really try and understand what happens in people's minds when they say that there is a vast conspiracy, a liberal conspiracy, a globalist conspiracy to try and defraud the people of America and turn America into a communist country. Because uh, they already believe it's a communist country, which is mad. But like when you're trying to um, get through to people, you're trying to understand people. People have been so receptive to us. Mm. Like, I think this is actually one of the most interesting things we found. If you tried to speak to people at a political rally in Ireland about who they're voting for and why they're voting for them, would you get 50% of people? Would half the people you tried to vox? Or as we say in the business, vox pop is where you're trying to chat to ordinary people. Like, would 50% of people actually even speak to you? No. Wouldn't think absolutely so. Absolutely not. Well, I they would wouldn't. Say, like, they probably wouldn't tell you. 90% of people. Yeah. They wouldn't tell you yes, how they exactly. vote. They There's definitely wouldn't. There's a secretiveness wouldn't. about it. It's mm. a private thing. 99% of people we have gone and stuck a microphone in their faces have talked to us and have been wow. really eager to do that. Uh, even if their beliefs are something that we would say is, well, it's patently, factually based wrong. Uh, it's, if it's slightly out there, they're absolutely delighted to tell us about it. Uh, I think some of that is because we're Irish uh, and we're not CNN or the liberal media uh, or the enemy of the people as Donald Trump and his supporters would have it. Uh, some of it is probably because I think some of it, to be perfectly honest, is because we're two white guys who are walking around America I think there's an element of that uh, that if we were um, people of colour if we were women we probably wouldn't get quite the same welcome reception uh, that we did get uh, and it is tough it's tough to ask questions about things it's tough to push back on these things as well when they're telling you and I think we'll come back to the conspiracy end of things at some point in the future uh, but there's this tape called 2000 Mules uh, which mm. is made by a known mm. conspiracy yeah. theorist and they're mad to watch it every single person keeps on talking about have you seen 2000 mules it's how they stole the election they had people dropping stuff in ballot boxes all of them believe this it is probably one of the most influential pieces of political uh, theatre that's ever been created and you're trying to get through and you're trying to say well that didn't really happen or do you really believe this and they do in their heart of hearts they do and they're happy for us to ask questions about it only a couple of times you've ever seen them going are you mad how come you're asking if this is really what happened because it absolutely did happen uh, and that's really just something that will, I don't think there's any way of shaking those people like, uh, there's nothing that's ever going to shake them from their belief uh, which, which is pretty worrisome um, let's actually give uh, li- listeners and viewers a bit of a taste of that Richard has pulled together a little uh, assembly a little grab bag of some of the people that he's been speaking to at one of the Donald Trump rallies let's take a listen I just love Trump I love everything about him he was the best president ever we need him back desperately we need Doug Mastriano we need Sherry Lake we need DJ Vance we need every single red vote we can get. He was sent by God. He was sent by God to preserve Abraham Lincoln's promise that a government of the people, by the people, and for the people will not perish from the face of this earth. We're going to end up in another civil war. And we may end up that way even if Trump wins again because they're going to be mad. You know, they stole, they did, they stole this last election and we're not going to have it this time. I mean, 
that is very representative of the people we talked to at that rally. Um, they were all really lovely people, by the way. Uh, the, man in, the man in the green hat who said that um, Trump was sent by God uh, to save America. Uh, he uh, actually, um, at the end of our interview, which was really one of the most interesting things we've done, uh, he said, I'd like to just sympathise. You guys are coming from across the pond. I'd like to sympathise on the loss of your queen. Uh, and oh, I just God. Said, well, no. Sorry, man. You got us wrong. You got us wow. wrong. Wow. Um, and he then said, oh, sorry, you're Irish. I, we, I love Shane McGowan. So, I mean, I, I could talk about the Trump rally all day. Let, let, let's talk about the Trump rally. We should talk about the Trump rally. Let's, let's, it was so, the maddest thing, strangest yeah. thing I've ever been at. Was it totally surreal? Okay, so, like, I really want to blow by blow account from, like, the moment you arrived, you walked in. Like, give us the vibes. What are you smelling? What are you seeing? I really want to get a, a real flavour. So it was on in a place called Latrobe, Pennsylvania, which is on the west western end of the state, up up towards Pittsburgh. It's in you couldn't find a more rural part of the world. It looks very like Ireland, loads of rolling hills, uh, lots of farmland and all that sort of stuff. All the way in though, you start to see like Trump flags in people's yards, uh, you know, vote with God, vote with Trump, all that sort of stuff. And then you pull in. It was on a uh, regional airport. I don't know if people have seen Trump rallies recently, but like they're on in airports because Donald Trump wants to land his jet and have that be the big centrepiece of it, pull his jet behind it, it says Trump in big gold letters, and have himself stand in front of that on American flags and uh, and preach to the converted, really, there. So we got there. There was people who were there from very, very early on. I think the doors opened at, like, 2 p.m. Uh, it was 8 a.m. by the time people were queuing. And, like, you have all these flags. It's all these flags and flags and flags saying Trump 2024, the election was stolen. They say, let's go, Brandon, which has become a code phrase. It's very hard to explain this one. About <laughs> We've done it some Biden. other time, yeah. Uh, lots of stuff. Lots of hatred about Joe Biden. And it's just just hordes, hordes of people wearing the worst T-shirts ever uh, of Donald Trump's face. Um <laughs> mad conspiracy theory stuff people wearing QAnon t-shirts and stuff like that and uh, people chewing pretzels and you know throwing them around the place we met a guy called Mark from Ballantyre in Dublin who was a big conspiracy theorist guy it was actually one of the saddest interviews I've ever done I actually felt really sorry for this guy because like we just heard his accent he was he's a guy I'm just trying to paint a picture of this guy he had a big red beard big red long hair Uh, he was wearing a bucket hat which had like a million Trump badges in it uh, and he's in like a jumpsuit, which is sort of like an American flag. Uh, so he looks like a sort of a young Santa Claus in many ways. And um, I just heard his accent and he walked over and he was like, what, you guys are from Ireland? He's from Ballantyre. And I was like, Jesus, this is the weirdest thing. This is the weirdest place to ever meet a man from Ballantyre. Uh, and he's a big QAnon conspiracy theorist. He believes that there is a global cabal, cabal of Satanists uh, who are running the world and Donald Trump is going to bring, ba- bring about the second uh, coming of Christ. Uh, and you're talking to him and he's been alienated from his family and stuff like that uh, like he said his, his family his, his parents back in Dublin have effectively disowned him and stuff like that and then you're like that's really sad like that's what the level of devout uh, commitment to conspiracy but, theories does but like overall yeah go ahead Zara I was thinking, how did he end up there Richard like how did, was he, did he move to America initially or was it just like was it the belief in Donald Trump that got him there just maybe what's the how did he get there in the first place Moved to America 14 years ago, he said. Like, that is what happens. Conspiracy theories break people's families apart. And there is a responsibility for political parties if they have a huge proportion of conspiracy theorists and people who believe mad stuff uh, in their ranks to actually root that out. But that hasn't really happened from the Republican Party. But, like, let's bring in more of the sense of smell and all that. Like, we we were there... (laughs) 
we had to eat because we had driven a long way. Myself and Owen are cranky drivers. We go for a long, long time. Uh, so we pulled up. We got a big, giant hot dog thing. And, like, we were under pressure for time to try and speak to as many people as possible. And I was there picking, like, onions and peppers off this sausage that I have mustard all over my hands with a microphone, uh, trying to go and chat to, chat to people about, you know, whether the election in 2020 was stolen and they'd vote for Donald Trump again. Uh, and it was just very, very odd. I think it was just very, very odd. Um, and it's actually interesting, the point about conspiracies and all that sort of stuff. Um, the vast majority of people there, absolutely everybody believes that Donald Trump should be still the president, uh, that he was robbed out of it. And people were <laughs> dancing. You heard some of the music actually in the background mm. there. That's mm. one thing I would actually point out. The music at rallies in the United States, second to none. Second to none. Hey, great playlist favourite. No, notes for the feet of fallers then for the next general election. Yeah. Um, it is worth kind of bearing in mind though because we're, treating, dance, yeah. we're treating this as a little bit of a novelty or sort of a little bit of this kind of harmless pursuit and these people are all deluded but that there's no harm to it. But it's, it's worth remembering that this does cause mm. material harm to people because I know, Richard, as well, that you were talking to uh, some of the people who were, like, involved serious physical harm defending the building right behind you on January the 6th last year. Yeah, and, like, 2020, I mean, that's... It's a beautiful backdrop. The Capitol mm. building is absolutely incredible. It's huge. Mm. It's all the steps all the way up the back if people are watching this. Like, if you just think about this, less than two years ago, you had thousands and thousands of Trump supporters who basically broke through there. They stormed that ginormous building and they effectively had it in their control for a matter of hours. And they caused real physical harm and real mental harm to people as well. Uh, and a lot of those people, people who supported that, were effectively on the ballot uh, in this election. So, you know, that's, that's, that's kind of daunting to think about. But, you know, there was a huge amount of damage which was called that day, both to American democracy, but also to people's bodies and people's minds as well. And the people who were defending the Capitol, the Capitol Police officers in Washington and Metropolitan Police, they suffered hugely. Some of them have taken their own lives since what happened on January 6th. And that's something that everybody reflects on when you talk to people who were involved that day, that they were called out as the enemy. They thought that people on the right believe you're, you know, that we're, we support our police and all that sort of stuff but that didn't happen uh, Dan Hodges is the man we talked to he was a Washington police officer uh, for about 8 years now uh, he was defending the Capitol that day uh, you, you might remember you might have seen the footage he was crushed in between a door and one of the riot shields that they took mm. and they were squishing him basically he lost um, he wasn't able to breathe his gas mask was pulled off they battered him over the head with his own baton uh, here's a little bit about what he had to say uh, to us have been reflecting about what that moment actually means for America they should have done it a long time ago. The Republican Party just cut ties with Donald Trump and that was their perfect excuse to do it was January 7th. When I look back at the day, it's, I'm angry. Um, there's resentment about the people who attacked us. And it's not, that day is over, but the effects are still ongoing. The, uh, that culture is still here and making its presence known in America. Yeah, so, I mean... Democracy on the ballot has been one of the things which the Democrats have made a cornerstone of their campaign. People really didn't, I'm not sure they voted with that. Uh, like most Americans are concerned about what happened uh, in terms of the undermining of democracy, but I'm not sure that's how they voted. But it really is something to watch. The, the political violence that is there, that has set in in this campaign, the intimidation that's there, mm. is something that's going to be very, very hard to shake out of American politics. And that's something that's very worrying for all of us around the world, because what happens in America very often just leaks over to other parts of the world too. And Richard, you had a chance to sit down with Sean Spicer. Um, a heated discussion, I would say, <laughs> between yourself <laughs> and, and Mr. So, yeah. Spicer. You, you weren't afraid to sort of confront Shawnee, Shawnee, Shawnee. a couple of the more difficult <laughs> subjects. Uh, yeah. Again, was that? I mean, look, I feel like we're re using the word surreal the whole way through this conversation, but it's probably the only way to, to explain it. Was it... 
Yeah. It was very weird. Like, I mean, I, I, I'd seen interviews with him before where he gets very heated with people. He did not like us. He did not like our line of questioning one bit. Uh, I think he thought that we were... Uh, you know, forelock tugging Irish people who are coming to talk to him about. Jesus, isn't it mad that you're from Ireland originally, or your family's from Ireland? Mm. And he didn't really get that in the interview, uh, which was basically held in someone's apartment because we had to change our studios. We had to look on this website for places we could record an interview uh, at two hours' notice. And he was bewildered by the fact that we were in someone's living room uh, recording this interview uh, in Alexandria, Virginia. He was like, "How, how are you guys here? What's, what's going on?" I think he was a bit put off by the virtue of the fact that we were sitting on someone's settee and trying to answer. <laughs> questions about whether or not he has any responsibility for, you know, the decaying fabric of moral America. Uh, so we asked him about, you know, because obviously everybody remembers, do you remember when Sean Spicer was the press secretary for, for Donald Trump and he yeah. lied about, you know, the amount of people who are along here for the inauguration he lied about um, voter fraud then, which is probably something people say ended up being very influential in terms mm, of the voter yeah. fraud mm, uh, understanding yeah. or message from Donald Trump in 2020. I asked him if he had any responsibility for anything that's happened in America, that the lies, that the mistruths uh, and the misstatements, whether or not he felt any way responsible for what was unleashed in America. Here's what he had to say. It wasn't pretty. You want to know if I'm responsible because some, someone has said something about a conspiracy with Nancy Pelosi's husband. And yet there were plenty of people that called out Brett Kavanaugh and he deserved it and he did this. Not one of those people came out and said a darn thing. Every Republican was supposed to denounce what happened to Paul Pelosi. And I'm glad they did, because it was wrong. But nobody is asked to say anything about Kavanaugh or Zeldin or any of these other things. We had an attack on the Illinois governor. Again, does anyone go to the Democrats and say, are you going to call this out? No. I mean, there is what such does that a say? What does that say about America? What does Americans? it say is that, uh, that, 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 that is the situation, that you do have these things happening and you can say, sure, it's happening on both sides. But does that not re require some responsibility and leadership from people, perhaps like yourself, but perhaps wait, like wait, the president's on. side as well? Sure, it does, to but listen to me. Calm yes, the situation here's down what it, take but, that but here's venom what out of it. Hold on. Yes, and what happened? Every single prominent Republican that I know denounced what happened to Paul Pelosi. There's, just, there's your leadership. Okay, he's not happy there, Richard. <laughs> Seems to be a little bit frustrated yeah. uh, by the line of that conversation. Uh, before we let you go on this one, can we say hello to Owen Kelly? Owen, will you pop in and say hello to us? Okay. Well, Owen, come on. Owen is so camera shy. Oh, I really want phone. people oh, to no, meet Owen Kelly. Oh, Owen, come on. No, Owen has to stand in and tell us He has to stand in and tell us all the stories about what you listen to when you're on your I really ask him what it's been like to travel with you. Oh, and what's it like to travel with Richard? We've had a great time listening to classic rock radio. Uh, there's been amazing radio stations. There's been unbelievable. <laughs> the political ads here are absolutely dirt. Um, <laughs> just the amount of like <laughs> muck that's flinging each other is absolutely sensational. But otherwise, it's been like listening to the GTA Vice City soundtrack. It's been all. I think we're going to have to get Owen uh, Kelly in through for a tell-all yeah, the travel yeah, with Richard Chambers special when you get back. <laughs> that's next week's one. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so it's been a very difficult week for people working in the tech sector in Ireland. Mm. The latest announcement coming from Meta, 13% reduction in their global workforce of 11,000 people, meaning that I suppose if you were to say 13% of the workforce in Ireland, which is around 3,000 people, potentially 400 jobs yeah, uh, to be lost. Mm. Um, you know, did we see this coming in terms of, of, you know, it feels quite sudden in a sense that we only had Twitter last week, now it's Meta this week. Is it something that we saw coming? Yeah, well, <sighs> It's it's hard to know whether you can say for certain that we saw it coming. Obviously, mm. there's been signs of some decline in the tech sector. Well, I mean, in every sector, like the world is going to go go into a, a, a recession of one sort or another. Yeah. So it's it's like kind of unthinkable that like major employers would skate through without sort of cutting any headcount here or there. 
there's a bit of a danger sometimes that we can look at two or three things that are happening independently and draw a trend out of them when there isn't necessarily a trend. Like, for example, we don't know, we will never know whether mm. if Twitter had not been bought by Elon Musk, we don't know whether they would have cut jobs at the numbers that they did or whether they would have cut jobs at all. We don't know for certain um, how Stripe would have gone in other circumstances, mm. would they have paired back? Um, certainly, Mark Zuckerberg says that the big problem that they made for Meta was that they went completely headfirst into presuming that the world was now going to be a predominantly online place the mm-hmm. way that it was during the pandemic. And that was a miscalculation and people have paired mm-hmm. back a little bit. So that's kind of unique to, to the company itself. So you have to be a little reluctant to draw too much of a, a kind of a global conclusion out of what's going on. But either way, with like the economy about to slow down and with some major countries about to go into a period of, of decline and a bit of recession, it would have been a bit naive to think that we would have gotten completely out of the other end without there being some redundancies, unfortunately, along the way. Yeah, just a bit of that statement from Mark Zuckerberg, as you mentioned there, that sort of presumption that the surge of e-commerce would lead to um, outsized revenue outsized revenue growth and he said that look he accepted unfortunately this did not play out the way I expected not only has online commerce returned to prior trends but the macroeconomic downturn increased competition and ad signal loss has caused our revenue to be much lower than I expected I got Mm -hmm. this wrong and I take full yeah. responsibility for that. I'm sure his apology won't exactly you know, put an awful lot of bread on many tables no. or it won't butter many parsons for those who are affected. But at least it is some sense of that this isn't necessarily a sign of the world going in the wrong direction. It's a miscalculation by yeah. senior management. But Richard, this is the first time in, is it 18 years that Facebook has been around mm. that they've had to do this? Like this is, you know, really significant. It is, yeah. And I think... You look at what Facebook has done over the last couple of years, or Meta, as they like to be known these mm. days, and that actually is probably, I think, at least a little bit part of the problem. How much money has Mark Zuckerberg, on his own whim, invested in trying to make the metaverse happen mm. uh, and trying to transform Facebook into something that people don't really want? It's actually interesting, even the context of the US election. You know, like We all talk about like 2020 and all the fact that Facebook was so crucial to that and it's crucial to elections because that's where people's ants are and that's where they're getting the news. All the ad money wasn't going to Facebook this time. It was going in towards YouTube. That's where people are watching this, this time around. Mm. So when you have individual billionaires running these sites, so Mark Zuckerberg says, I want to make a 3D world where creepy versions of myself and creepy versions of people are chatting, chatting to each other as opposed to just holding a Zoom meeting. Um, that seems like a bit of a waste of time and money. And I think that's bittersweet for people who are working in Facebook or Meta and now they've lost their jobs and their livelihoods as a result uh, of you know, I got this wrong, says Mark Zuckerberg. Um, That's tough to take. So when you have individual ownership of companies this big um, and the individual control and that, you know, people taking companies in whatever direction they want uh, can actually have real bad, 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 bad implications for companies. And it's the same with Elon Musk. Like, I mean, I know, Gavin, you said that we have no idea whether or not Twitter would have done this Mm. uh, if it wasn't for the fact they were taken over. Well, Elon Musk had said when he was coming in that he was going to gut the workforce Mm. and he did. Um, So... That's not something to be surprised about. That, again, is the impact of one individual on not just the company. And it's not just about the company and the jobs, but it's about the entire space where people interact online. Uh, and I think that that is something which we, again, should be looking at. But it is. It's going to have huge implications. And what happens often in these things is that they're like without over-talking ourselves into you know a risk of contagion. If one major tech company or one major social company uh, announces a raft of job losses, it provides cover for another one to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah. like yeah. you could see yeah. uh, companies which did not intend to cut workforces because of the fear of a backlash of doing it. Uh, well, then they might now do that. Yeah. So if you're a social company and you're like, well, 
Facebook did it and Twitter did it, so maybe we should do that. We could cut some, you know, co- cut some costs for ourselves there now as well. Like this is what happens when when you have that sort of um, individual leadership. And I think it it also it is worrying in an Irish context how much of our economy is tied up in these. Just companies. ask, just ask you guys. I suppose in relation to Twitter, though, there are some people who were told sort of last week that they were going to lose their jobs, and now they're mm. being told, oh, actually, it turns out we really need you now, yeah. so you're not losing well, your job. That's a kind of on a worldwide scale. Mm. There does appear to be some anecdotal stories of some people in the yeah. Dublin office who were told last Friday that they were going to be laid off and who. Have been approached subsequently to by, by management effectively realising that their function is a vital one and actually can't be done away with so mm. they need to keep those people on hand and that's a, that's a very traumatic thing for those people to be told Completely. going and into a weekend. And would you want to work for a company that treats well, you like well, that? Also in truth it's difficult to know what sort of workplace Twitter is going to be now for those people mm. so you can fully understand if they decided that they actually didn't want to be there. One thing that's worth just reflecting on though before we talk more about Twitter is the fact that um, Mark Zuckerberg in that statement also talks about the idea of trying to cut back on their real estate spending which effectively means that because there's now a lot of people working from home a lot of the time mm. that they want to think more about hot desk and just reducing the amount of office space that they've got in major places. Like if you go down to, to Misery Hill down beside the, the um, Board Gosh Theatre in, in Dublin and you see the, the sheer amount of office space that Facebook has down there, that Meta has down there, and they're now clearly going to be pairing that back. That's not unique to them. There's been reporting in the last few months that other tech companies also want to reduce the amount of office floor space that they're renting as well. And what does it say about a city that has chronic housing shortages that appears to have over-budgeted for the amount of office space that tech companies need and they apparently now want out, but you can't just repurpose the buildings to be used as apartments instead. Like it seems like a yeah. pretty pretty grim outlook all right. It's worrying for Ireland in a sense that our economics correspondent Paul Colgan was reporting at lunchtime today that the tech sector accounts for 16% of the Irish economy though. So we are as a country very reliant on that. So mm. I mean, you know, it's definitely one that we're going to be watching very closely. I want to just move on really quickly to ask both of you because both of you have joined and you both seem to know. <laughs> I did try to join Mastodon. But you did what? join it. I did. Your I have joined there, it. So I follow you. Oh, now. do you follow me? Yes. Yeah. I well, think it's gas that you follow me, right? Yeah. Because I must tell you later, I can't actually get into it. <laughs> I don't know how this has happened. What is what is Mastodon? So it is an alternative to Twitter. Basically, the, the ultimate premise is the same. It is microblogging, so you're allowed to post short entries. In, on Twitter, it's 280 characters. On Mastodon, okay. it's 500. But the idea is that instead of it being run by a, a giant for-profit company, it's run on individual volunteer-run servers. Mm. And the crucial difference is that there are humans that moderate some of the content. So it's maybe a little bit more like a bulletin board. If, if people uh, were users of boards.ie or some other kind of bulletin board, they might be familiar with the idea that there's certain ground rules and if you behave in a certain way, that basically get kicked off for doing it. And oh. by and large, that's kind of how it is. Now, because it's individual servers, you can follow users that belong to other servers, but it seems that you kind of more have a home plate so that if you sign up to the Irish one, you're Gav Riley at mastodon.ie, that it's not just like Twitter where there's one board that everyone joins yeah. all at the same time. So, <clears throat> it's a little bit harder for things to go viral or to find people on other servers than it is on Twitter. But well, considering say, I can't even get into, like I've joined it and I can't <laughs> yeah. even get into my own page. But like they, I don't know. But they say that it's part of the design, uh, Richard, bring in just a sec, that they, it's part of the design that it's not meant to go full algorithmic or go full viral, that like you can only follow people that you actively hunt down. Yeah, the idea is that there isn't an algorithm trying to spew you something that's going to inflame or get some sort of response out of you. You're only seeing the content that you've actually wanted to see which they say is the big difference between it and, and Twitter as it stands. Right I mean, I'm, like I say, I've only been like I joined it and I can't even seem to get into my. I have to. I have to agree to a load of terms and conditions. It keeps asking me to agree to loads of stuff before I get to see my Mastodon page. Okay. Anyway, I don't. I don't think at a first glance it's going to be the replacement for Twitter. What, Richard? What are your thoughts on it? I think too much of our minds have been poisoned by Twitter that we actually have made this a conversation about whether or not everybody is just going to move from Twitter to Mastodon. Yeah. That's never going to happen. Yeah. Um, like the fact of the matter is, and there has been a lot of sort of 
pondering and sort of chin stroking about what Mastodon can be and what it can't be. Um, I think that the actual eventual replacement for Twitter, if there is such a thing, that probably hasn't been created yet. Mm. But the fact is that there's a lot of sort of chin stroking about, oh, is it a good place for media to get on? Is it, is it as good as Twitter and all that sort of stuff? Like, mm. and you, you ask, well, what are, what are the parts of Twitter that you want to see? Well, so I want to see, you know, stuff that goes viral. I want to talk about politics. I want to talk about news. And it's like, these are all the things that Twitter got horribly wrong. Um, that, you know, you are desi- by designed, the things which are controversial on Twitter will be boosted into your timeline. Uh, and that, you know, you are, you know, if you engage in any political topics, people will find the hashtags and will join in and will use your tweets to basically... Uh, abuse people to spread lies they'll use you know journalist tweets as a basically a launch pad uh, to their own misinformation uh, and that you are in a perpetual argument as a result of how Twitter does business like I've actually changed my the way I use Twitter almost entirely I am barely on it I'm barely looking at any notifications because it's absolutely a hellhole um, and it has gotten worse over the last number of weeks and I think that you know Mastodon it seems a bit it seems a bit rough around the edges and a bit ropey but the fact of the matter is that people who are going on to Mastodon uh, are being told when they get there like this isn't Twitter don't try and use it like Twitter because that's you've been programmed your mind has been poisoned by the algorithms of Twitter and I think that's absolutely the case um, and that instead of looking to try and you know stoke the flames and trying to stoke up arguments and disagreements that maybe a nicer, more conversational space like Mastodon has its own spot in it. But I don't know. I'm very worried about the whole way social media has sort of turned people on each other and I'm getting more and more worried about it every day. Yeah. Like, yeah. Being here in the States, people came to like <laughs> conspiracy theories and have come to hate the enemy as they see it because of social media. Uh, I think that Twitter is not a good place. I don't think that any of the others are actually particularly good either. I think that, you know, we're all subject to the algorithm and people will see what's controversial and what is pushed towards. Uh, yeah, and ultimately... I, I, honest to God, hit the reset. It's like, user behaviour. Well, it's like you said last yeah. week as well, Zara, that it's user behaviour. Yeah. No, no, even no, if Mastodon... No, I'm going to cut across. I'm going to have to cut across it. No, user behaviour, like it just cuts out. Like, where's the responsibility of any of these companies? No, but it is both things. It's not one or the other, it's both. It is both. No, but like, I mean, you, you can say user behavior, but like you have the rules for what you do in your places. And there is nothing which, like, you can put up things which are completely untrue uh, and defame people and, you know, muddy the water and impact on elections and people's livelihoods. You can ruin people's lives on mm. social media mm-hmm. and you can be banned for a week eventually on Instagram or on Facebook or on Twitter. Like, that is nonsense. And but, you can't just be able to just say, oh, well, look, we can't, we can't account for everybody's behavior. But you should. You no, have but, rules. You have the but, ways to do things. The, the, so, like, the only, I mean, the, I just, point, think, I just think it's, it's a cop out just to put it all onto. Well, I, I don't think it's all on, but, but I think the point is that, that people's behaviour has been materially changed. Where pe- mm. Because people now think it's acceptable Definitely. to do that. If Twitter or if Mastodon picks Definitely. up the same level of user base, then there's nothing to stop people at least trying to behave the same way other than some human volunteer moderators who aren't going to be able to scale up at the level you need to do to try and keep all that stuff off the platform. So I, I don't really know how okay. it's going to change. The we thing have about to... it is, the thing about it is though, like, I mean, if you're walking down the street, if you walked into a supermarket, and you were having a conversation about, say, sport. So you, you and your, say, you and your wife or your partner went in, and you were talking about sport or something you saw on TV. Nobody's going to walk over to you uh, and just say, "How can you be talking about this at a time like that?" Uh, and just start, you know, spewing abuse and violence into your face. So it's not really, it's not a human problem. It's what the way that people have been conditioned by the social networks is to seek out arguments and seek out ways of inflicting pain on other people. And it's just terrible. The human condition has been damaged by it. It's just a real poisoning, to be honest. Well, on that cheery note, we'll uh, <laughs> we'll see you after the break. Hold <laughs> up. <laughs> 
Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. So I suppose we're coming to the time of year, Gavin, when uh, the health service goes back into sharp focus. Although Mm. it's been one of those years where we had like a summer trolley crisis. And some of the figures from that summer trolley crisis were shared uh, by Sinn Féin's health spokesperson, David Yeah, These are striking. You've been reporting on these for the last Mm. couple of days for our news bulletins. And I'm genuinely a little bit surprised they haven't kind of caused more public alarm because the substance of what you've been reporting, like it's genuinely like we we say the word shocking so regularly for the health service that sometimes it loses its meaning. But actually, this is absolutely shocking. Well, it is in a sense that one of the statistics, the top line out of it, was that a patient over 75 spent nine days waiting to be admitted to like University Hospital nine Galway. Days. Nine days. Like you can't, if you just think about the practicalities, anyone who's ever been in an emergency department or an A&E, like if, you, if you're there for longer than like six or eight hours, you, you nearly start agitating the nurses on duty to mm. be like, listen, what's going on? Can I be seen soon? Yeah. So, it, by, so by definition, if someone's there for nine days awaiting admission, it's because they're there on their own. So they've got nobody else to advocate for them. So if they're over 75 and they're there on their own and the lights are crazy so you can never get a proper sleep or that you're on a trolley so you can't go and get a meal, mm. like it's dreadful. It's dreadful. dreadful. Uh, Seven hospitals had patients waiting four and a half days or more for admission and in two instances patients over 75 were waiting for six days. Now these are figures from uh, the third quarter so these are figures as I say from uh, July, August and September. Now last week the HSE had a briefing on Thursday. Um, They conceded that like if you go to an emergency department now you could be waiting 24 hours to be seen and dealt with such as the the volume of people coming through the ED at the moment and the likes of the Irish Nurses and Midwives Organisation they're now saying that there are dangerously low staffing levels in our hospitals. So we put this to the Chief Clinical Officer of the HC, Dr. Colin Henry, said, look, nurses are stressed. They're worried going into work. They're saying it's dangerous in hospitals right now. And uh, he said he was also concerned about patient safety. Of course, we, 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 I'm worried about patient safety and about the uh, impact of, of, of uh, congestion in emergency departments, primarily because of the discomfort it causes the patients, but also to their welfare and, and to their outcomes. So I'd love to give the reassurance that maybe the people who contact me would like to hear that everything is going to get better overnight, but it's not. This is tough and we are competing in an international market. Dr. Colin Henry there being really blunt and saying that, look, he accepts that this is uh, not an ideal situation. It's not going to change overnight. And anyone going into an emergency department this week can expect to wait a very long time to be seen. It's, it's, it's very grim. And speaking of situations that are grim and not going to be changed overnight either as well, we should talk a bit about climate change because mm. of the big summit that's going on in Sharm el-Sheikh this week. That's the COP27 summit, which is the conference of the parties all discussing exactly how the world is going to meet all of its targets. Uh, we have a guest with us uh, from COP27 this week. Tara Shine is the co-chair of the Change by Degrees climate campaign. Tara, thanks so much for joining us this week um, on the group chat. Um, for those who don't follow the whole nuances of this, just just sort of give us big picture first. COP27, it's not a summit where we're expecting to have sort of major new commitments. So tell us exactly what we should be expecting from this week. 
Yeah, so this COP, hi everybody, by the way, um, I'm in the, the blue zone in the heart of the COP. So if you, there's goings on around me, it's just because this is a very, very hectic place with lots going on. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, this is not a big outcome COP in terms of there's not going to be a big profile outcome um, like necessarily we had in Glasgow or Paris, um, but it has a lot of work to do. And key issues that are on the table here at the moment are keeping the 1.5 degree temperature goal alive mounting evidence, just mounting, mounting evidence about how the current levels of warming that we're experiencing already at just 1.1 to 2 degree to 1.2 degrees of warming, that's warming above the average temperatures in pre-industrial times before we started to burn coal and oil, that that's already having devastating impacts. Like look at Pakistan, for example. Um, and that, that means that we have to redouble the efforts to actually start doing the emissions reductions. We have to get our emissions down. And, you know, in Ireland, we're not succeeding in that, and neither are others. Because if we don't, then we run ourselves down into this cul-de-sac where the only thing to do is compensate people for the losses, particularly the people and the countries that have not caused the problem, that have not yet industrialized, but are feeling the, the brunt of the, the, the impacts. And that's what we, we call loss and damage. And you're going to hear a lot about that this week and next week from here. And Tara, just even kind of bringing it back to a local level here in Ireland, as you mentioned there, the Taoiseach saying yesterday, like we are having an unseasonably warm November. You know, I mean, like getting out your winter coat really at the moment is just, it's over the top. It's just, I mean, we're talking kind of 13, 14 degrees most days. Mm. Like, and you can see, and, and it's quite sad to see that the trees don't know whether they're coming or going, that nature is confused by what we're seeing now. That's the reality of this, isn't it? Yeah, and so if, if those impacts are here and we're seeing them and we're feeling them, you know, there was floods down where I live in Cork just this week as well. Um, but it's still not getting us to to just connect that this is a here and now problem. For some reason, we still think it's it's in the distance. And, you know, normally what we should do is act in our own self-interest and protect ourselves from what's coming. And the key way to do that is to is to stop producing the pollution that we're putting into the atmosphere so we don't pass this crucial, crucial 1.5 degree goal. Um, But also that we start to adapt. We start to realize that some of these changes are locked in um, and that we get ready for them. So we're ready for more intense rainfall. Um, We help our systems adapt to these warmer warmer and changing seasons. Um, But, you know, it's going to be different and it's going to be harder. And that's why we need to do what we can now to prepare, but also to stop the problem getting any worse. Climate activists regularly get accused of alarmism or sort of catastrophizing all of this because mm-hmm. they talk so much about how the world is continually at tipping points and there's so much talk of them. Is there a danger sometimes that people get so resigned to climate change now just being irreversible or that the work to address it being too hard that people almost feel like the, the war is already lost, that there's not worth fighting the battle because it sort of feels like it's one we've already lost anyway? Yeah, and I, I just don't understand that because... I guess what I know, I I just was working within this United Nations process on uh, a dialogue over the last two and a half years where I heard over a hundred testimonies from experts around what exceeding the temperature goals mean. And it's just awful. It's hunger, it's migration, it's starvation, it's unrest, it's conflict. Um, it's a really, really, really awful future for our kids as they grow up. And so for me, I don't accept that, you know, so I'm not giving up on this goal. I, I feel like we haven't even tried hard enough to achieve it yet. Like, what have we really all changed 
in our lives, in our businesses, in the way we run our country yet. We haven't made the changes yet. And I also don't understand why we're so protective of this current status quo that we have, because it's clearly broken. You know, we have homelessness, we have trolley crisis, we have inequality, we have people in poverty, we have people who are hungry. So what we have now is pretty broken. So let's make something better. And that we can make something better, which at the same time gets these emissions under control and make sure that we have a much more hopeful future for our children. And for us, you know, those of us who have a few years left on this. And Tara, would you actually say there's probably some more room for optimism today than there would have been even a number of months ago? You see the political changes that are taking place around the world, you know, Rishi Sunak in the UK actually attending despite, you know, some, uh, some I suppose, backsliding on climate commitments by the UK in recent times. Here in the US, obviously the congressional elections here aren't a huge overwhelming victory for Republicans who are was likely to put, a, put the brakes really on uh, climate legislation here in the US. Do you think that there's some movement really which is trying to which which might actually lead to a more optimistic approach on a global level towards climate change even the tone that we see here at the talks in Sharm el-Sheikh shows that people have got it, that it is here and now. Um, I think we haven't quite internalised it, like felt it emotionally as leaders and actors in the world to actually be brave enough to kind of say, you know, right, this might this might be a tough thing. Um, but hold on, I just, excuse me, can you, can you not test for a second? Sorry, they're just testing the microphones in here. But yes, there's certainly, there's, there's a, this is what it's like. <laughs> this is good, this is live and this is live, this is happening. Yeah, This yeah. is live, this you is are fine. live from the middle yeah. of the cup, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think, yeah, so I think things like, you know, seeing that even across the divide in the United States, there's growing momentum. The fact that they have the inflation reduction bill, the fact that we are seeing countries coming, we saw yesterday countries coming and actually pledging more in terms of climate finance, actually accepting that loss and damage is a thing and that they need to, to fund it, like accepting that responsibility for the emissions that have been caused and realising that we all have to work as a global community to protect those that are most vulnerable within our own countries and in other countries. Tara, I just want to ask as well, because when it, well, I, I think I remember it was on one of the earlier episodes of the group chat, I went on to something of what was described as a rant about how inefficient we are at actually tackling climate change uh, in our country, that we're good at climate rhetoric, but not great at climate action. And one of the things people always put back to me was, well, it doesn't matter what we do in Ireland because of places like China and India and Brazil. What is your response to that when you say, when you hear people say that it doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things, that there is that deflation, that defeatism about what people in Ireland can do about climate change? How do you respond to that? So it does matter. Our emissions per capita are a hell of a lot bigger than those of China. We, the, we, the middle class people in the wealthiest parts of the world, are disproportionately responsible for this problem. Our way of life is founded on consumption of fossil fuels and unsustainable um, food systems. So we are the cause, so much more than billions of poor people around the world. Um, it is the top 10% of people, um, the richest people. that, and, and many of us fall into that bracket because, you know, um, when you look at the, the on a global scale, we are the well-to-do. So what we do does matters. And what we also know from Ireland and from our diplomacy overseas is that we can lead, we can punch above our weight as a small country. and and. You know, climate change is another place where we have the opportunity to do that. But we need to act at home and lead internationally. Those two things need to be kept in balance. Uh, for just a second there, there were alarms coming over Richard's microphone, but I sort of like the pathetic fallacy of it all because certainly the alarm bells are ringing. Um, Tara, we'll let you go. Thanks so much for talking to us on the group chat this week. That's Tara Shine, who's the co-CEO of the Change by Degrees uh, Sustainability Consultancy, joining us from COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh. Tara, thanks so much for joining thanks, us. Thanks, Tara. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having Thank me. You, Bye-bye. Tara. Now, <laughs> I've got to tell you, 
there's breaking news. Well, it's, it's broken a couple of days ago. Okay. But girlos around the world, spice up your life because no. the Spice Girls, Richard, get excited about this. I, I need enthusiasm from you here. <laughs> the Spice Girls have reunited. Good, good. And they've reunited minus Mel B at Jerry Horner's 50th birthday. Can't minus believe she's 50, by the way. She looks amazing. Okay. Fabulous. They minus got, Mel B. Why minus Mel B? What's so going Jerry on? Jerry and Mel B don't have a great relationship. I don't think they're not like they wouldn't be. Oh, yeah. There's been a bit of running, but listen, we won't get into okay, that. I have, I have takes on this. You've taken this. Right. <laughs> take it. Let's just take a look at this. I want you to take okay. a look at this. When I say it brought joy to my heart to see that cliff, I'm I'm not even gonna I'm not holding back. It brought joy to my so heart. For listeners, Atro Lara was dying inside. This is a clip that was posted by David Beckham, David Beckham. to his Instagram of uh, the the rest of the the girls minus Mel B at yeah. Jerry's fiftieth. Like you said, yeah. oh yeah, Jerry. Looking very well at 50, aging like a fine wine. Oh, stunning. Um, but so is this being... Friendship never we... ends, Gav. That's well, what it means. So Friendship never ends. Are we looking at of another reunion tour now or, or more full reunion material? Or th- well, what's this going to mean for us? I don't know, because obviously Victoria Beckham didn't participate in the last reunion tour because I think she's kind of, you know, moved on with her career and she's like a really high-end designer and stuff now. But I mean, I personally would love a Posh Spice reunion. I mean, I mm. went to the last concert... Probably the best concert I've ever went to in my life. I was no shame first, in my game. The first reunion tour, I brought my, my now wife to it in 2007 or eight, And that was the, the first time around when there was only the four, including Jerry. Uh, but they all performed some solo material in the middle of the set, except for Victoria, who didn't want to go down her True Steppers vibes a bit. Dame Bowers? Yeah, so she just did a little fashion show thing. She just did a bit of catwalking, strutting around, striking Not a Not such an innocent girl was a good solo track from Victoria Beckham. Stop. That was a good tune. A take. Out of your mind. There's a tune. <laughs> Give us your take. I'm not a big fan of Dane Bowers in general, though. But yeah, Richard, don't Um, ruin this now. Don't ruin this for me. I'm not going to ruin it. I'm not going to ruin it. I think the Spice Girls are are great uh, in many ways. Um, I think that the 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 tendencies towards reunions is is something that's bad. Is this is this reunion number three? Then is it? I think it would be. Yeah. If if you don't include the Olympics opening ceremony, in which case it's four. I'm open to all reunions from the Spice Girls, to be honest. It's sad. It's sad that Mel B is not included. I think she was she was probably my top Spice Girl, I would say. Uh, and I would say as well that I've seen too much of Drive to Survive on Netflix uh, uh, to, to, to have any uh, tendencies of liking uh, Jerry Horner or her husband, Christian, uh, who is uh, an awful uh, braggart of a man. And uh, I find... Um, I find, yeah, I just find the, the, the Horner Halli- Halliwell thing just very annoying. Uh, but more power to them. I think people have a great night at that. That's one of those gigs where people just lose the run of themselves and, you know, they, they spice up their lives and every boy, every girl uh, gets behind <laughs> it. And, you know, uh, like, I mean, I was just, I was literally dancing on the spot here. It's really cold here in Washington uh, as we play that clip. And that, that has brought a warmth. Both the to my step I think to we're my getting a collective sweet mother of God from the gallery team here on yeah. the programme. So I think that means they're all really, are you, does that mean Daniel all excited about it? I presume that's a good sign I think if they're doing positive, mother of yeah. God's. Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. We're being told we should wrap up. Favorite Spice Girl song before we go quickly. Uh, oh God, uh, Spice of Your Life, classic. Richard. Yeah. Ah, two become one. <laughs> who do you think? You, who do you think you are is a classic for me? Okay. Okay. Yeah. Two become one was the first cassette tape I ever bought with my pocket money. Just FYI. Anyway, we wow. have to go. Okay. Thank <laughs> you so much for listening to the group chat this week. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. Leave us a comment on uh, your podcast platform, and we love you. And we'll see you next week. Uh, and thank you to Killian, to Maxine, yes. and to Gareth, and to Own Kelly for making Richard look so beautiful. And to everyone in the gallery who is really excited about a Spice Girls reunion. <laughs> okay. Right. Goodbye. Next week, everyone. Goodbye. <laughs> 
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.